0: (laughs) Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I apologize for our change in venue from our usual hall for this. I know it's smaller, and I appreciate everyone's coming up here and finding their way through the construction. Uh, I'd like to introduce our um, speaker this afternoon, Dr. Kabir Modi, fellow hematology oncology. Dr. Modi uh, started his training at Boston University, where he got his bachelor's degree. He then went on to Columbia, and got a master's in clinical nutrition before attending Saint George's University in Grenada. Following graduation from medical school, Dr. Modi did his in- internship and residency at Saint Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York. He then went on to a chief medicine resident year at Caritas Kearney Hospital in Boston. He joined us after uh, uh, some time as a hospitalist and is completing his three years in hematology and oncology fellowship uh, next month, about four weeks to go here. We're all gonna be very sad that he's leaving us. Um, Dr. Modi has uh, distinguished himself during his third year of fellowship with a concentration in GI oncology. He's been a very active member of our team uh, and he's been uh, actively involved in a number of uh, research initiatives. And I'm pleased to say that he's going to be joining the staff at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville as a gastrointestinal oncologist, starting in the summertime. Uh, Dr. Modi has no conflict of inf- interest to declare. <laughs> he uh, unfortunately regrets that he does not have any financial interests in any <laughs> pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and uh, I think you will, be, you will uh, not, will not, or will be discussing off-label. Well, I mean, probably a little bit of off-label use. Invest, um, uh, but no investigational products at this time. And he's not receiving any direct payments from any commercial entity with respect to anything he's going to say this afternoon. So um, I'd like to uh, thank everybody again for coming and uh, uh, our visiting delegation from Tanzania. Welcome. And uh, Dr. Modi. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, all actually a lot about pancreas cancer uh, and mainly about um, my research that dovetails and sort of extends upon Dr. Pipus's, um passion over the last uh, several years, the GI group here. Um, so again, I have no disclosures. Um, actually, I'm going to pull out my handy little uh, controller here. All right. So um, really, the objectives are um, for this talk are to appreciate the need that for improved therapeutic strategy in pancreas cancer, understand the surgical factors that um, underlie survival in pancreas cancer, the rationale behind neoadjuvant therapy, which we'll get into, the limitations um, in analyzing the current literature, and some talk about some exciting future directions um, for therapy. So these are the famous. Um, Faces of pancreas cancer that we see a lot um, in the media, but these are really the patients that we treat here at Dartmouth and worldwide. You know, they're unknown to us generally, but um, there's a large group of patients that suffer from pancreas cancer. Um, when I was initially a fellow here in August of 2011, I encountered um, this fine young woman, Julie, um, who was a young woman who was suffering from metastatic pancreas cancer. and ended up getting to know her quite well when we treated her, and she passed on, but um, she's really been, her, my experience with her has really been inspirational um, going forward in my career, so. Um, pancreatic cancer in general is mainly a, more commonly a disease of the Western world, as you can see by the countries in red. Um, its incre- its inc- incidence is increasing by about 1% a year. Um, you can see about 45,000 people in the United States got it last year, and 38,000 people died. Um, it's not necessarily one of the more common cancers in terms of new cases, but it is the fourth leading cause of cause of death from cancer. Um, and while other many other malignancies are declining in terms of their mortality, pancreas cancer is going up again by about 1% a year. Um, and in the last 30 or 40 years, we haven't really made tremendous success in terms of um, increasing survival. It's gone from 2% to 6% in terms of five-year survival rates. Um, So pretty poor. In terms of risk factors, smoking um, uh, really uh, underlies about 30% of cases of pancreas cancer. Obesity, um, especially obesity. in early adulthood, adulthood is associated with a 20% higher risk for pancreas cancer. Alcohol intake—not your, you know, Sunday football game sort of drinking. This is more like three, four drinks a night or more. Um, it's associated with a 20 to 30% increase in risk. <clears throat> family history: if you have one family, uh, first-degree family uh first-degree relative, you have about a 9% increased risk, um, or 9-fold ni- risk uh, increase, um, three or more up to 32-fold uh, increase in risk. And then there's genetic factors. So we know that there's um, MLH1 and MSH2, which um, uh, underlie Lynch syndrome, um, and that asso- is associated with about a 9-fold nine, nine per- nine, increase in risk. CDK- CDKN2A is uh, uh, behind familial atypical melanotic mole syndrome and is associated with a, about a, a 40% increased risk in pancreas cancer, or 40, 40 x Um Chronic pancreatitis uh, increases your risk about three times. Sorry for the gross picture during lunch. Um, and diabetes, especially long-standing diabetes, so patients who have diabetes for more than five years have a 50% uh, increased, increased risk for pancreas cancer. And interesting about diabetes is that sometimes uh, pancreas cancer can cause diabetes, and there's a lot of growing data, uh, uh, especially out of the Mayo Clinic in, in Rochester, that that has shown this. Um, so uh, late onset diabetes, one generally, uh, can precede the the diagnosis of pancreas cancer by about two to three years. And then um, hepatitis uh, viruses and H. pylori have been implicated in in one or two studies. Um, and surgery really is the um, only shot at the present time of long term survival. The problem is that only 20% of patients present to us with resectable disease. Um, in 1899, 1898, Dr. Cotavilla did the first pancreatic head resection um, under the great anesthesia of ether. You can only imagine having your belly opened up for a whip or for a Pancreas surgery with ether on board. Um, and then Dr. Kosh did uh, the, the first, you know, what we would know of now as sort of a Whipple procedure with taking the pancreas and the duodenum <clears throat> in two stages. Um, in 1914, so the early 20th, 20th century, Herschel did the first one stage resection. And then uh, this man who we've all come, in, come to love, Alan Whipple, devised the Whipple surgery in which. You're um, transecting the bowel and attaching um, the, the stomach here and the, and the jejunum, leaving a little pouch here and attaching the bile duct and the pancreas. The problem with earlier surgeries was that they attached the pancreas quite close to the anastomotic point, and because they were of the staunch belief that pancreatic juices were essential <laughs> for life, and so they were plagued by... <laughs> Excuse me. high anastomatic leak rates and, um, and mortality because of it. Um, so this change really uh, made a huge difference. Um, so surgical factors affecting survival, um, we know that volume matters, and this is a study that was done by up here, here in the Upper Valley by Dr. Berkmeyer and colleagues, and um, they looked at um, Medicare claims data of over 7,000 patients and classified centers into low, a very low, low, medium, or high volume centers, as you can see there. Um, and they showed that high volume centers had a significantly higher um, survival rate than others, 39%. So here at Dartmouth, we would classify as a high volume centers. We, we do We do many of them every year. The other other factor which uh, affects survival related to surgery is the margin status. Um, And we classify it as R0, 1, R2, R0 meaning you have a negative margin, so there's no cancer cancer cells within um, a millimeter of the margin at any any site of the resection. R1 is that it's within, there are cancer cells within a, a millimeter, and R2 is there's microscopically gross positive disease at the margin. So the first study to demonstrate this was a, a study of 75 patients who had uh, upfront Whipple procedure resections. And they noted that the margin negative patients had a five-year survival of 23%, whereas everyone else basically did not survive five years. Um, this is a more um, contemporary study out of, out of Mass General a couple of years ago, uh, or last year, um, which sort of tried to drill down and noted again, um, if you have a, a, a margin greater than a millimeter, and survival is far greater than uh, uh, even having cells within a mil- millimeter and technically a, a negative, uh, a negative margin. In fact, you know those patients have survival similar to not having a resection at all, um, as you can see here. Locally advanced disease with no resection. So. One last thing that affects surgical um, survival—if you have just a surgery up front—is local recurrence. Um, a number of pe- many, pac- many patients will, rec- will will recur locally, and that causes a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, in fact, 20 to 30 percent will just die within a year of having recurrence locally. So that got people to thinking, well, how do we prove all this? Well, we can do adjuvant therapy, meaning chemo and or chemo radiation after surgery. (coughs) So there are a number of large, these are the largest studies that have been done since the 1980s. And you can see that there are some survival, there is survival advantages, no matter what you do, whether you do chemo alone or chemo radiation, there is survival (coughs) advantage. The problem is, that not everyone is privy to that survival advantage. What I mean by that is that um, you can see that up to 40% of patients don't even complete therapy. This is related most in part, mostly due to the mor- mor- morbidity and mortality post-operatively. You're getting a major operation, and then you're expected to tolerate chemotherapy and radiation. The other notable thing is that there's a wide variation in R0 resection rate. Again, we know that that affects Survival significantly. Um, the one last one last thing uh, related to these adjuvant studies is that the local regional recurrence rate is unacceptable in my mind. Up to forty five up up to forty three percent of patients having local recurrence, again after having a major operation, um, and yet. Uh, their five-year survival is still less than 25%. So yes, it's improved if you hadn't done anything at all, of course, but um, still poor. So how do we improve on this? And, and our, con- our contention is we have to increase rates of r- R0 resection to a- achieve survival benefit. You have to increase definitive local regional control and increase the rate of negative lymph nodes that you're taking out. And we would claim, and many others would claim, that you would that you need to do neoadjuvant therapy to do this. And so this is my argument as to why why this strategy works. So the rationale is you're selecting for in, pa- in treating patients before they get a resection. You're selecting for patients who uh, you're selecting out for patients who, who will have early recurrence, i.e. Someone comes to you with resectable disease, and you uh, take them to surgery right up front. They undergo the morbidity of that surgery, and three months later, they have a recurrence. Um, That person uh, was probably not, they were not served by by the surgery, and they went through the morbidity of having such. So we're selecting out for those patients. You're increasing the rate and likelihood of R0 resection, and we know that that, impacts on survival. You're delivering non-operative therapies before a morbid surgery like a Whipple, um, and and really maximizing their patient's opportunity to get all the components of that therapy properly. You're treating a well-perfused tumor um, compared with a hypoxic post-surgical environment, um, and reducing rate of local regional relapse, which I'll prove to you later. Additionally, there's um, you are getting some treatment of earlier uh, of early met- micrometastatic disease. And in pancreas cancer, this is particularly um, important. So this is a study that came out last um, uh, two years ago, where they took mice and they um, induced p fifty three and um, KRS mutations. so there was a high frequency of pancreas cancer. And within sixteen to twenty weeks, they have a, a visible tumor. Uh, pancreatic ductal endonocarcinoma. Um, and they looked at um, cells which had transformed from the epithelial phenotype, which is that of pancreas cancer, to a mesenchymal phenotype, which is more uh, aggressive. They, the, these are cells which acquire invas- uh, invasive properties. They're also more resistant to um, gemcitabine based therapy. Um, and they noted um, that even at the pannin stage, so pre-pancreatic tumor, so precursor to a pancreas uh, cancer, um, 7% of those patients, had, uh, those mice had already undergone this transition to a more resistant aggressive phenotype, and these uh, they had noted that cells had already left the primary tumor and started um, traveling distantly. Um, and they also noted that these cells had already gotten into the circulation, even at the pre-tumor stage, so very early on. Um, and in the liver, they looked at the liver and they found um, that 4 of 11 mice, even in the panin stage, had metastases to the liver already. So how do we think about the origins of neoadjuvant therapy? So. This was the original study um, looking at this uh, at the feasibility of this concept of 15 patients, um, uh, 10 of whom completed resection. All had an R0 resection. Um, and this was the follow-up phase two study. So um, uh, they treated them in the same way with 5-FU and mitomycin with radiation. Um, then they restaged them. And if they were resectable, they went on to get surgery. Um, and uh, 46% of them eventually got resected. Um, and um, their survival rates were far longer. So you see that five-year survival rate is 58% versus <coughs> 0% for those who did not get resected after neoadjuvant therapy. What was the resection rate on that? 100%. Mm -hmm. So who do we consider resectable? So this is a a topic which um, has garnered a lot of attention in terms of trying to pick out the patients who are able to get resection and also to enable us to do better clinical trials. Um, (laughs) We use CT staging, so small slices through the pancreas and the region. With the triple phase, so you're getting uh, venous, um, venous phase imaging, arterial phase imaging, and portal phase imaging. Um, oops, sorry. Um, and these are the criteria which are most often used. Um, this was set forth in 2006. Um, and, and uh, where they look, so the resectability is basically defined by the tumor status uh, relationship with the nearby vessels. So the superior, superior mesenteric uh, vein, the portal vein, the superior mesenteric artery, and the common hepatic artery, as well as the celiac artery. Um, and so if you have uh, any, sort of, any sort of impingement upon these, you then are borderline or locally advanced depending on how extensive that that involvement is. MD Anderson came out with their own criteria, um, which is a little bit different in that they allow a little bit more um, uh, involvement with the celiac arteries um, uh, to consider borderline resectable, so they're a little bit more regressive in terms of um, vascular reconstruction, um, but otherwise they're essentially the same. So here, uh, in my second year, we, uh, Dr. Pipus, wanted to sort of undergo a comprehensive analysis of our, of our program here. So um, here, they've been doing neoadjuvant therapy for pancreas cancer since 1996. Um, and so we analyzed the results of all the patients treated in that, in that way. Um, so basically, what, what happens uh, here is, uh, after a diagnosis, They come to a multidisciplinary multidisciplinary tumor board um, and a pancreas interdisciplinary clinic where the patients are seen by um, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, palliative care, nutrition, everyone on the same day. It gives them very comprehensive um, care and overview of the situation as well as a more speedy uh, initiation of, of therapy. Um, they then, uh, many of them will then go on to a diagnostic laparoscopy. Um, the reason behind that is that 20 to 30 percent of patients will be found to have um, some evidence of metastatic disease, and thus you're sparing them uh, the uh, neoadjuvant therapy in that situation. So, um, again, they get diagnosis and a diagnostic lap, and then they undergo six to 12 weeks of gem-based chemo radiation. Four weeks after radiation is completed, they get a CT for um, restaging and then within two to four weeks they're in the operating room getting surgery if they are still resectable. There were three protocols included on this on this study. Um, the first was uh, just gemcitabine and radiation alone, and then uh, gemcitabine docetaxel induction followed by gemcitabine with radiation. And then the newer one involved an EGFR inhibitor called cetuximab with gemcitabine and radiation um, together. So gemcitabine was initially actually intended as an antiviral drug, but then they noticed that it killed cancer cells, leukemia cells, um, and the way it works is that it, uh, it's, it enters into the cancer cell via concentrative and equilibrative equilibri- transporters, it's then triphosphorylated, and enters the nucleus where it um, impedes upon DNA. Uh, replication. It can also inhibit um, uh, ATP production by um, purine uh, synthesis. Um, and it's a potent radiosensitizer. So um, in this study in 1995, uh, Schweck et al took colon cancer cells and noted that gemcitabine cytotoxicity was dependent on how long you incubate the cells with gemcitabine and the levels of accumulation of the triphosphorylated form. Um, But they also noticed, again, that ATP levels significantly and rapidly decreased at even non-cytotoxic doses of gemcitabine. When they exposed them to radiation, they noticed that the radiation sensitivity was dependent on ATP decrease and not the triphosphorylated form. Um, and and the ATP decrease happens much quicker with far lower doses of gemcitabine um, than are needed to actually kill the cell. So why the 50 uh, milligram per meter squared dose that we use in our protocols here? Um, this was the phase one study that Dr. Pipas and his group did uh, in the 1990s. Um, that they treated 21 patients in any fashion. We give the gemcitabine two to four hours before the radiation, um, twice weekly, and uh, increased the doses in cohorts of three. And you'll notice that um, there were two, uh, a grade, was one grade four and one grade five toxicity at the 60 milligram dose, so that the maximum tolerated dose was 50 milligrams per meter squared. Um, we assess response based on CT, but this is not the most perfect of situations, that doesn't allow us to really tell what the tumor response has been. This is a study from MD Anderson where they took 122 patients with borderline resectable disease who had been treated in a neoadjuvant fashion, and you'll see that about 70% of the patients had stable disease, yet 66% of the whole population underwent mm-hmm. resection. And um, certainly the survival was increased for patients who had gotten resected, Uh, But the conclusion was that you really should undergo resection as long as you don't have metastatic disease. And I think the reason here, the uh, the important point here is that we can't tell what's, obviously, we can't tell what's tumor and what's necrotic tissue. In fact, in the early studies of neoadjuvant therapy, they noted that a large section of the tumor specimen was actually necrotic tissue. um, uh, And we see that even today, Um, but we can't obviously tell uh, what what the response has been on a CT. Um, so it's a little hard to tell what's necrosis and what's tumor in terms of de- defining resection. Um, CA99 is a, uh, a molecule that we use for uh, as a tumor marker in pancreas cancer. Um, uh, and the MDS group has also looked at this as a potential predictor of resection. It does. Um, if you have an elevated c 99 before therapy and um, with therapy undergo normalization uh, of that marker, um, there is a 70% likelihood that you will undergo you will be able to undergo resection. And in fact, your survival with normalization is better regardless of resection um, or not. Uh, we recapitulated this analysis in our population of 200 patients and found, again, that there are significantly higher odds of undergoing resection if you have normalization of CNIT9 um, and uh, significantly improved survival in both groups of patients, whether you get resected or not. And this is being presented at ASCO next month. So our population was um, 202 patients. The majority of them had pancreas head tumors. Again, this is where most patients have pancreas cancer. Um, you'll see that their CNIT-9s were uh, elevated as up to about 200. And we did have more patients who had borderline and unresectable disease than resectable disease. So these are patients with more advanced disease. Um, and in general, they were in, in good um, performance status, so in good health generally. Uh, up to 98% of our patients completed therapy. So you'll note this is much different than the adjuvant setting, where about 40% of patients May not even get their complete therapy at all, um, and side effects. It was a very was generally very well tolerated. The majority of the side effects are um, myelosuppressive nature, so neutropenia, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia. Ten um, percent had about nausea, uh, some nausea and vomiting, but in general a very well tolerated therapy. Um, response rates. Again, you'll see the same trend as you saw in the Nbe Anderson paper, where. About 60% of 60 to 70% of the patients have stable disease. Um, 20% of patients got a partial response um, from therapy. <laughs> so, despite 60% of patients having uh, stable disease, um, uh, 70% of patients in resectable group um, completed resection. And what we find really uh, impressive in our in, in our mind is that. In the patients who had unresectable disease up up front, 28% were able to undergo resection. So these are patients that if you had sent them to, if they had presented elsewhere, uh, most other places in in the United States, they would have have been told that surgery was not an option, uh, and they would have been put on a palliative course of of chemotherapy. Um, So that's striking in our mind. Um, So despite a large proportion of patients with advanced disease, Our R0 resection rate was 83%, so um, very good. Um, And these are the uh, resection margins for the different groups. So again, in the unresectable group, um, patients with very advanced disease, um, we're still getting 70% of them to an R0 resection, which is quite meaningful for their survival. Um, In comparing the resectable group to the adjuvant data that we saw before, you'll see that 91% have an R0 resection rate, which is uh, significantly better than most adjuvant studies that have been done. Um, 74, 74% of patients had uh, lymph node negative um, uh, pathology. Um, and again, as this compares to the adjuvant setting, in the adjuvant setting, only maybe up to about 50% of patients will have lymph node resection. So you could say to me, well, these are prospective Data you're comparing prospective data to a retrospective study, okay? So here are two respect- retrospective studies, one from Hopkins and one from Mayo. Um, in, in the Mayo study, the, these were these were all only R0 resection uh, uh, subjects, um, but in the Hopkins data, again, 55% had R0 resection and lymph node negative was only 20%. So what about survival? Do these patients survive longer? So a little point about the existing neoadjuvant data, it's, a, it's a, somewhat of a hodgepodge. Um, it's largely single institution study, mostly retrospective data. Um, there's yet few, few in the way of ret- uh, prospective studies. A lot of them are small in population, uh, and there are variations in the, in the regimens that we use. There are dozens of regimens which have been used. Um, our overall survival for, again, for resectable patients is 28 months, 27 months for borderlines, and 15 months for unresectables. So here you see the ranges for other neoadjuvant therapies were uh, generally comparative, uh, com- comparable to those. Um, and I would argue better than adjuvant therapy, though it's not a head to head analysis. Five year survival in the resectable group is 37%. That's to us remarkable uh, and significant. Um, uh, Again, in the adjuvant trials of of similar patients who underwent upfront surgery, less than 25% survived five years. Um, Progression-free survival um, is good. Um, 17 months for resectables, 19 months for borderlines, and 11 months for unresectables. So where are these patients um, progressing? Um, And so I told you before that local recurrence, uh, we would argue that neoadjuvant therapy optimizes uh, and lowers local recurrence rates. So we initially did a study here, um, Dr. Pipus and Dr. Greer and Dr. Barth, of 102 patients who had had either no additional therapy, adjuvant therapy, or neoadjuvant therapy, 70% R0 resection rate in all groups. Um, And again, local recurrence rate is far lower in the neoadjuvant arm than the adjuvant group, despite the fact that the neoadjuvant group had um, Mm -hmm. a higher percentage of uh, more advanced um, tumors than the adjuvant group had had. So in our study, 8.7% local recurrence rate for everyone. Um, But here's the problem, and this is where the improvement needs to come is distant recurrence only. And This is something we'll see with. Um, with any other neoadjuvant um, therapy or study that you look at is the distant recurrence rate remains um, unacceptable. So the age, we looked at age and survival. So a a lot of these patients are presenting um, in their um, later years. Uh, And so um, patients who are older than 70 or 75 may be told, well, you're not going to be able to tolerate neoadjuvant therapy. It's not going to benefit you, but in fact, we proved there was no difference. Um, In patients younger than 70 or older than 70, the the survival was the same. And again, uh, we have a very high completion rate. majority of our patients were um, average age was about 65. Um, So I think this is an important finding as well. Of course, limitations for our study is, again, it's a retrospective single single institution study. Um, We used three different treatment protocols. Um, We've published on them individually in the past, and the results are essentially about the same, but um, still a limitation. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about future directions in terms of pancreas cancer and uh, specifically neoadjuvant therapy. Um, we know, uh, obviously, targeted agents are, are uh, being investigated in pancreas cancer, as they are in. in all other tumors, um, and there are a number of um, different targets which have been identified, um, many of which we don't have <clears throat> answers on yet, um, and many of which are, co- are coming. Um, personalized therapies are, again, uh, also uh, a potential um, uh, front for us, um, and immunotherapy as well is also starting to make its way into the world of pancreas cancer. Um, uh, so we obviously know here at Dartmouth about PDL1, from the work of Dr. Noel, um, it plays a crucial role in negative regulation of cellular and humoral immune responses, and again, a likely role in tumor invasion from the immune system. Um, in pancreas cancer, <coughs> excuse me, at least 40 percent of patients uh, of tumors have um, expression of PDL1. Um, it's also found in the dense lymphos, um, lymphocytic and um, desmoplastic stromal uh, environment of pancreas tumors. Um, it, it, its expression is an independent predictor of significantly decreased um, one year survival. So you can see that PDL1 negative patients do better than PDL1 positive patients. Um, And blockade has demonstrated, in a a xenograft mouse model, has demonstrated um, reduction in tumor cell growth and metastasis. And um, when given with uh, with chemotherapy, uh, particularly gemcitabine, um, it's synergistic. Uh, There is a thought that gemcitabine um, does impact the immune system uh, in pancreas cancer in terms of... Um, increasing antigen generation uh, uh, and lymphocyte activity within the tumor. Um, so that's possibly a reason why there's a synergistic activity there. CD40 and CD4 lig- CD40 ligands, they are involved in um, enhancing antigen presentation and cytokine release. Um, and if, uh, uh, but over 60% of tumors will will express CD40, CD40 ligand. uh, And if you engage it on tumor cells itself, it causes tumor cell apoptosis. So uh, there are two um, forms of potential therapy here. There's a recombinant form of uh, human CD4 CD4 ligand, which is cytotoxic against CD40 expressing tumors, um, and enhances antigen presentation um, triggering an antigen-specific T-cell response, so uh, a form of targeted therapy. Monoclonal antibody, which is an agonist to CD40 the CD40 receptor. Um, and if you give chemotherapy before uh, the, you give the monoclonal antibody, you actually enhance tumor antigen presentation and activity of the chemotherapy. Um, uh, so there is currently a trial um, being developed and started which Dartmouth is going to participate in, of a CD40 monoclonal antibody to be given with chemotherapy. So that will be starting here, hopefully, uh, within the next year, I'm guessing, hopefully. Um, also, EMT, we talked a little about EMT, uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition earlier in the talk, um, and there are a number of agents which um, have been purported or demonstrated ability to reverse. EMT, thus making the, the tumor less invasive, less aggressive, more responsive to chemotherapy. Um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about curcumin, um, uh, sort of a different, um, a different type of therapy in, in that it comes from the, the herbal world here. Um, it's, a, it's a flower, it's a root. You take the root and you grind it up, um, and you can even make some tea out of it. So I wanted to give you a little recipe here. Um, it's used a lot in um, in Asia, um, uh, and it has been, re- been reported in a number of studies that have several different effects on uh, uh, um, receptors, growth factors, uh, a number of different targets, as you can see there. Um, as it regards um, EMT, uh, it, it inhibits TGF beta, Um, The effects um, reducing um, SHH and GLEE and Vimentin, which we know are uh, increased in mesenchymal transition. It can also um, affect the levels of microRNAs, um, which are involved in mesenchymal transition and uh, invasiveness. Um, But you can see the the number of other effects that it has, has as well. In terms of the microenvironment, um, uh, we here have had some experience with connecti- connective tissue growth factor, which is overexpressed in pre- um, pancreas cancer. Pancreas cancer has a very desmoplastic, fibrotic. Um, it, it's a very fibrotic tumor, and it has there is a lot of a lot to the microenvironment in this tumor, um, and CTGF f- facilitates that um, desmoplastic response. So there was an antibody that um, was shown to reduce tumor growth, metastasis, and prolong survival. It was studied um, with gemcitabine and um, and overall survival was increased, particularly in patients who had lower baseline CTGF levels, uh, but it was also related to, um, proportional to drug concentrations um, in the plasma. So, these are all potential future directions for us. Um, uh, I'm working now um, for Mayo on a, on a trial of uh, there's a triple um, inhibitor of fib, um, fibroblast growth factor receptor, uh, VEGF, and um, PDGF, um, which I hope to potentially uh, get a trial going on. Um, that could hold some promise. Um, but in general, a number of different directions, and I hope you'll support the GI team in their neo work going forward, because there's a lot of uh, exciting ways to go with this. Um, I do want to thank the whole GI team, uh, the surgeons, um, Dr. Pipas especially, and Dr. Hortekin and Dr. Ripple and um, Elizabeth McGrath for letting me invade their clinic space over the last year and a half. And, um, Patients with them and, and my family, my wife is here, and my kids. Um, so, thank you. Thanks.
0: Questions for Dr. Motors, <coughs> Dr. Lansigan.
1: So um there were a number of patients treated off protocol and this um the last study was open in 04 and I think we, pub- we published it 2012 um so there uh, there've been a number of patients who have been treated um off protocol but we did not look at that difference. So You
0: included
1: that in? Yep.
0: In the whole yep. Case. Yep. It didn't interesting to see <coughs> you know, the... any Yeah. Right. Yeah, off protocol. All of our treatments are the same as the patients received on right. protocol, so they're all the commonality is is the <laughs> backbone of twice weekly gemcitabine and radiation, which all patients received. So uh, we published three papers, but all use that same backbone. Okay,
1: so you. Didn't so it's, the no, no,
0: no, 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 no. And all patients treated off protocol were treated as per on protocol. So. Okay.
1: And they all get you know, they all get the same new sort of nutritionist support and palliative care support and the old supportive care package that you could envision as my, my second follow
0: up comment is just the ne which is a very good way to understand the biology.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, uh, that is ongoing. There's a group at University of Wisconsin um, who is basically determining which neoadjuvant chemo regimens you would get based on sort of known biomarkers for response. So, for example, um, uh, one of the transporters for gemcitabine is the equilibri- Hent protein, the equilibri- one of the equilibrative um, transporters. There has been some data that hent levels on tumor cells would um, predict for gemcitabine response. So they use that as a that, that, um, level on, on a pretreatment biopsy as a um, marker. There's markers for 5FU as well, um, and abraxane, they're using SPARC. Um, uh, so, yes, that, that, that is ongoing.
0: Yeah. In our microRNA 10B. Follow up question. Guarantee you, at some level of politeness, you be asked. For. Your good results must just be from patient selection. How are you going
1: to respond? Um, I think that uh, our therapy is not. You, you saw that it's a pretty tolerable regimen. Had a lot of experience with that here. So, um, there, in my experience here, we've had a large, you know, we, we, we've been pretty lenient with who we give therapy to. We're not tremendously picky about, oh, this person has coronary artery disease, we're not going to give them therapy. So, it, it's generally a pretty uh, generous lot of patients that I would say. We tr- that we treat, I, d- I don't think that we're particularly picky about or biased in terms of who we, who we treat and who we don't. Do, 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 do you? The short answer to say no. So uh, I think that you know
0: uh, there's an inherent <coughs> bias, as we've, as Kabir alluded to earlier. There's inherent bias with any uh, single institution experience, and especially any e- retrospective single institution experience. And, and I think the issues going forward for the field. Uh, have a lot more to do with prospective randomized studies which to date have simply not happened in this disease to everyone's disadvantage and uh, we're members of a group that are moving forward with that now at a couple of different levels. And through the Oncology Network and through Alliance there are going to be some studies coming forward uh, doing that. So that's really the issue is what's going to happen prospectively with uh, separating out that investigator bias. That's really the next step that needs to happen. So do you have enough data it would be useful? We armed against that question. You what the full denominator of all these patients treated on protocol, off protocol, really about this question. Just so you can answer the critics saying, Yeah, we really did treat it this with not sharing. Yeah. That's what that's going to be operated by pressing. Yes.
1: I think that there's a growing amount of data out there that this happens so early on in pancreas cancer that I don't know that it would make a huge difference. Because um, uh, I, I I think that the majority of tumors will have, will be EMT positive. And so we already know that this tumor um, does not respond to chemo very well or very long. Um, so I think that, sort of the biology of, of that occurring um, no we don't and in fact the trial that the study that I'm working on now um, with Mayo is um, we're talking about looking at circulating cells because clearly they're, I mean they're there but um, using that as a, a marker for response and yeah welcome thank you very much for you are presentation. Why well, come from uh, five-year <laughs> survival rates for pancreatic tumors?
0: Very, very low. Mm-hmm. It's bad news. <coughs> I noted that when you are presenting, after diagnosis,
1: the patient is seen in the tumor board, yep. and after that, you do the laparoscopy. Why don't you do it before that? That's number one. And number two is do you think technological advancement, that is the imaging techniques that are available to you now, have contributed to the minimal
0: increase in survival rates because 25 is still very
1: small. Yeah, I mean I think CT, if we didn't have CT or MRI, we wouldn't be able to, you know, come up with these sort of ways of defining who's resectable and who's not. so I think technology has enabled us to do a lot. I think there's a long way for us to go. As you can see, I mean, a lot of these patients we have, they may have no tumor there, but there's a huge fibrotic mass that's sitting there. We can't tell whether it's fibrosis or tumor that's um, we could take out. Um, so that, that was the question. That was the answer about technology. What was your first question again? <laughs> Sorry. The laparoscope. You oh, do why don't we after do... After the tumor board. You make a diagnosis, you see the patient, and then you go and do the laparoscopy after that. So... you to be full. At the tumor board, what we do is we really look at all the imaging um, and, as a group, assess whether they're... What sort of resectability status they're in. Um, and, you know, if there's a lot... Many times if they're clearly respectably, we, mo- we won't necessarily do a diagnostic laparoscopy. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So it it really takes that group discussion about whether the whether the patient meets criteria as being resectable or borderline or unresectable before we sort of decide whether we're going to go ahead with a, a diagnosis. I think it. if I
0: could step in, yep. I think the purpose of the pancreas IDC and the tumor board is to <coughs> do this as fast as we can mm-hmm. to keep people from waiting. And and the the gastroenterologist is the person who frequently will present our patients to the board and and Sometimes we don't have, you know, the pathology is coming in that morning. So these patients are frequently endoscoped on a Friday or even a Monday morning and then presented on a Tuesday morning. So there's simply not time to move ahead with a laparoscope. And the purpose is then to present the patient to the surgeon and make a decision about laparoscopy. So it's done with uh, with an intent to move things quickly and rapidly forward. And the patients are seen by the surgeon that morning as well. Thanks, Kabir. Um So you mentioned uh, kind of one of the problem areas still is the is the distant recurrence, right? The, the, um, the non-local uh, recurrence. But it still seems that most of our, both neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy is focused on local control. It's mostly radiation-based. Um, although some of the protocols gave some high-dose systemic chemotherapy, most really are focused on more the, the low-dose chemotherapy, the chemo RT. Have there been any efforts in doing Adding more systemic therapy to neoadjuvant and any indication that there's an improvement there.
1: Yeah, so um, there are studies looking at full dose chemo only as neoadjuvant strategy, or um, and in comparing those in comparing those to chemo radiation, some would argue that there is no difference, um, as a recent Lancet article showed. Um and some would argue sorry argue that there is a difference, as a recent compilation from Hopkins and Mayo showed. Uh, and with, so with the advent of fulfirinox therapy, which is a uh, a 4 reg- regimen which was um, which proves itself in advanced metastatic disease, fulfirinox is now being looked at as a neoadjuvant strategy. And um, there are about four or five small retrospective studies looking at it treating patients with this is an, a pretty heavy duty every two week regimen. Patients are getting everywhere, anywhere from four to thirty uh, cycles of, of therapy as a neoadjuvant therapy and even then, um, distant recurrence rates are, are unacceptable. So I think it's going to take um, a strategy of combined neoadjuvant adjuvant and adjuvant therapy going forward. We just have to prove it first. Um, and it, so the group here is involved in looking at um, comparing them, but that's to be determined. In the back. Uh, you said that you had trouble looking at the different types of tissue, like fibrous versus. <coughs> have radiologically? Have you done a PET scan? We don't do PET scans. PET scans, for in terms of pancreas cancer, is not borne itself out as being the most sensitive test in terms of diagnostic or response follow-up. So we've not tended to use PET for 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 right now. Um, and then, uh, with your new adjuvants have you looked at altering the time treatment between gemcitabine and x-ray therapy? <laughs> uh, there's some evidence that uh, that gemcitabine uh, takes more time than two hours. <clears throat> so in the SHUWAC paper they did, they incubated for four hours and 12 hours. Um, again, it's dependent on the ATP depletion, and the ATP depletion happens very quickly. You know, within, so they were incubating for four hours, so it happens, very quickly in that time span. So I'm not sure that, um, in terms of radio sensitivity, incubi- uh, doing treatment 12 hours before would make any, a huge amount of difference. Um, well, it, it stops uh, the stalled replication force, so it prevents them from progressing into the cell cycle. Mm-hmm. So uh, the x-ray therapy might be more beneficial than the stalled replication force, which takes more well, mm-hmm. So, so uh, by a, a different mechanism other than ATP. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure of data that's looked at at that particular mechanism. That's interesting. Rodwell, did you have a question?
0: Yeah, I I was going to ask if you (coughs) you now you have you know a sample, maybe not much.
1: The, that's the simple answer. Uh, is there, to do there, there might be. Um, the problem in that setting is that there's a ver- there are variable tumor responses, so you may you may or may not get enough tissue. Uh, it, you know, cells are scattered. I don't know if it, that would. It might be a little bit more difficult, but that's a good thought. Yeah, no we have All
0: right, Dr. Boger. Dr. Moses. Thank you. <laughs>